Welcome back, friends. We've got a little bit of a different flow for this week. Normally, fortnightly, that's every other week, we're looking at Protect Your Noggin with Jesus. We had to change things up just a little bit for this week. Stacy is traveling to Nevada, and I'm heading in a few days to Dallas. So we were kind of scrambling, so we're going to just shift it slightly. Next week, we will return with you, and we'll be discussing Protect Your Noggin with Jesus once again. But today, I wanted to go back to something that was brought up from a student who we interviewed, Autumn. And Autumn mentioned this powerful experience she had at this thing called the Crosswise Institute. It's something that I've been a part of. Uh, every summer at Concordia University, Irvine. Today, I'm going to speak to a couple colleagues who've been part of that as well. And we're going to explain the background to it and, and how it fits in with something that is the big picture question for us, and that is the liberal arts. Today, we want to talk about the liberal arts as a vitally important aspect of training and education for people within conservative Christianity. That is, some of you might be thinking, you know, hey, what Jeff and Stacy are talking about on Protect Your Noggin is kind of interesting. It's helping us to see that it's good for us to give students freedom to think for themselves, not to be too authoritarian, not to force them into conclusions before we let them explore all the angles and also how they get to those conclusions. I want to suggest through the show that it's not just for progressive communities, churches and colleges, those sorts of places where they're obviously going to emphasize, or at least they think they're obviously going to emphasize free thinking. No, in fact, there's a long tradition of the ways in which conservative Christians, Catholics, evangelicals, Protestants of various sorts, have actually been able to carry forward, despite all the other silly things that might happen within the churches, carry forward learning and critical thinking skills. It's quite a thing. It goes back really as far as, uh, you know, the early formation of the schools, goes back even to Charlemagne. Sometimes I'm a little down on Charlemagne's era for bringing church and state too closely together and corrupting Christianity. Not intentionally, but it it seems to have happened. At the same time, what happens is Charlemagne is able to preserve stuff like the writings of St. Augustine and the monasteries where they're learning and exploring and coming up with new ideas. And this, friends, is so important for us. And so if you are tied to a Christian community at all, I want you to think about this show as a way of exploring the importance of this thing called the liberal arts. Now, the liberal arts will explain what it is, but it has something to do with freedom. Now, the downside would be something related to freedom, as in people who are free get to have this education. But we're going to explore it, especially as a way of giving people the opportunity to experience real freedom, intellectual freedom. And we're going to then turn towards the end of today's episode, towards a discussion of this this program we do called Crosswise. In some ways, we'll be trying to encourage you to do something like it, or to even come to this one if you've got, uh, if you're a high school student, or if you have students in your life. But the more important piece of it is the way in which we have tried to navigate the tricky business of being Christians in the academy and having uh, academic rigor and academic excellence within a Christian context. It is not easy. We are not endorsing everything that Christian colleges do. I'm not endorsing everything even pedagogically that my own university does. They certainly are not um, uh, endorsing everything I say on this show. The thoughts and opinions on the show don't necessarily reflect that of my institution, and that's true for the two guests that I have on. My guests are Joel Esch, 
Dr. Esh is a, a really cool guy who works with kind of transhumanism, technology, and the way that affects communities and, and minds today, especially within Christianity. And then my friend Dan Dean, who is an expert in philosophy and science. And so he runs the philosophy program at Concordia. And we all are going to talk about our experiences in the university and at this program called Crosswise. I think you'll enjoy it. Come along for the ride. Let's go. Friends, I am hanging out at Concordia University, Irvine, with uh, two old pals and colleagues in a couple different departments. And Joel Esch is in theology. Would you introduce yourself a little bit and what you do here? Yeah, Joel Esch. I uh, have a couple different hats I wear at Concordia. The first thing is being a professor of theology, so I'll take on some of the core classes, the intro to theology, New Testament, stuff like that. And I also direct the master's program in theology, so I have some of those classes as well, a little bit more boutique-y things, including uh, thesis work, uh, stuff like that. And then uh, my third part of the hat is Crosswise Institute, which we'll get into in a little while, I'm sure. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that. And also here with my friend Dan Dean. Dr. Dean, you teach philosophy. What, what are you doing here? Yeah, I teach uh, philosophy here at Concordia University, Irvine. Uh, they've got me housed in Christ College, and I basically run the freshman <laughs> philosophy experience here. <laughs> Intro to philosophy, four sections a semester, all year long. If you don't like Dan Dean's version of philosophy, <laughs> then you know you're going to have to deal with it at that's some right. point, even if it's with no other options. <laughs> yeah, no options. No, it's great though. I well, love it. We have professional studies here, but in in many ways, the centerpiece of what we do is known as the liberal arts, and there's a there's a weird history to that, and sometimes people try to define it. Sometimes there's a way in which liberal arts refers to the sort of education that rich kids got to have when everybody else was going out and learning how to make widgets or uh, was maybe not free. Liberal, referring here not to politically liberal, but more to the the freedom that's involved, either the freedom of the person who's taken the course or, hopefully in a better sense, the way in which liberal arts helps us to uh, kind of have free minds. But now this is interesting to to us here at the uh, Protect Your Noggin podcast because... One of the things that we care about is the way in which that we can have a healthy way of doing education, especially when we think we've got something that's true, really important, ultimate truth, and we want to communicate that to folks, but we want to do it in a way that's, that's healthy, that respects their autonomy and their agency, and is providing a level of freedom, but also maintaining the mission and the, in our case, the confessional element of who we are, our identity. So I want to start with Joel and just ask, you know, you, you're teaching theology at a liberal arts school. Uh, what are some of the challenges there, and how do you navigate that? How do you teach theology, especially to kids that maybe don't come for theology or aren't Christians at all? It's actually kind of part of my favorite thing I do is being able to introduce uh, freshmen in college to the nature of what theology is. You know, theos, logos, theology, um, uh, God talk or God words. But you're right, it is a little bit of a trick because uh, in the past, a lot of times, we see theology like this top-up, or, or this uh, top-down approach where there's this big central authority tells you what to believe, tells you he, these are the doctrines, these are the dogmas, now fall in line. doesn't seem to fit necessarily with kind of the more liberal arts interdisciplinary approach, but that's kind of what I love about the theology that I get to teach is I still get to inter- engage and, and play with some of these massive 
questions that we've been asking as a society for quite literally thousands of years. And so, for example, a question that I always like to address with my class is what makes humans human or what is fundamentally human about being human? What are the essential qualities? And I like the idea that theology has a specific way of going about this, but it doesn't mean it's at the expense of the other disciplines that we get to engage. And so my friends in biology or my friends in anthropology or psychology can also engage in that particular discussion. Theology has something to offer, but it's not the final word. It's simply one of many words and the richness that we get to explore of what it means to be human. After all, I kind of have this little bit of mantra that all, God, all truth is God's truth. Where, where we find it, we can use it and we can explore what it means. And sometimes we'll get something very true that comes from an atheist. Or sometimes I like to say, sometimes there's more truth that we can discern from something like a song from Johnny Cash than perhaps... Romans chapter six or something. How dare you? I know that's terrible. Say maybe something like uh, you know, you know when you when you hear something like I shot a man in Reno just to watch (laughs) him die. There is something deeply profound about that that I can latch onto and have an interesting conversation about. So for me, theology is never this monolithic thing, but theology is everywhere we look. And therefore, I freely and joyfully get to engage my brothers and sisters in different disciplines and see what new insights emerge. That's a lot of fun. That's a lot of play. Yeah, you know, and it is really nice here at Concordia. We have, we have theologically engaged faculty in other departments. That is, they're, they're interested in the implications. Yep. We're interested in those conversations. We have conversations, especially in theology, with the folks in bio, and they love chatting with us. Um, I, I've noticed that the biggest, the biggest frustration for students, or sometimes I'll ask them, why is it that they're not maybe interested in becoming affiliated with Christianity? And one of their key concerns is that the theologians have so many different ideas. So why would you, why would you respect that, right? Or um, if So we many ideas in the sense that there's so many different denominational angles on a yeah, question? If or, we can't yeah. get our act together, why would, they, why would they think we have anything to offer? Do you have an answer to that one? I sometimes fumble with it. No, I just kind of think that uh, lots of different voices are uh, ways that we can individually reduce our own blind spots. And so that doesn't seem to be necessarily a weakness. Of course, you've got certain boundaries that you can play within. So theology is not not so much a point or a destination as it is kind of like this fence around this great big playground. There's certain things that Christian theology, I I can't say, not because... um, I feel this oppressive weight of the church upon me, but simply the very confession of the earliest church says that Jesus is God. So I can't say that Jesus was just this dude. And so there is certain things, but within that, within those kind of those broad rules of, hey, what it means to be a Christian, I've got lots of different ways I can explore different things like the Christian life, like uh, the nature of sacraments, the, the interplay between justification, sanctification, all these cool terms. I can do some of those conversations and weave in and out with different denominations. And I think that that can be a joyful thing. I don't find that to be a particular disorienting thing because disorientation actually does at times force us to ask these difficult questions that will in fact shrink our blind spots. So we're not so oblivious to certain perspectives and points of view. One of the things we do in the freshman courses is talk about the, what we call in, in Lutheranville, the formal principle. Where do we get our theology from? What's the, what's the source of it? And a colleague, I can't remember which one it was, really did, did a good job one time when I saw him presenting to the freshmen and was saying that the, the reason for all the difference really isn't so much a problem with the data or scripture, depending on what you, know, what you want to include as your data. It's more uh, what, what sorts of things are you privileging, right? So is reason, your emotions, your intuitions, 
tradition, authority, yeah. all the, the personal experience. Right. So if you if you have a different angle on that, if you don't trust, let's say, special revelation or the Bible, well, that's going to affect your interpretations. But you you've you've had cl- you know classes where students might not be Christian, so you you've got a certain set of bookends that you're not going to personally be going outside of. But there are conversations that happen that could include folks that you're reading that are atheists. Well, sure. And of course, you know, when you think about, for me, you know, formal principle really starts and at least the word of God is something that's going to orient all my kind of thinking about theology. But it's not to say a personal experience is to be cast aside as nothing. Right. And since it doesn't matter uh, whether or not you're a Christian, you're going to have a life experience. And so your life experience is going to speak into a conversation about what are the big transcendent things that we all kind of share. I just have a different way of maybe opening their eyes. Hey, there's something in scripture here that might be speaking to that. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily mean that no matter what experience you have, I'm just going to cut you off and say, well, that's a bunch of, you know, malarkey. I'm going to just discount you from the very beginning. The point is is to invite you into that conversation to say, hey, maybe there are some things that are humanly... Uh, that that connect us as humans, and we just have different frames of references that we can, I don't know what I'm trying to say, uh, ways in which we can find some common ground. Yeah, and what's what's nice there is that, you know, for for our podcast, one of the things we really want to get more church-related educators to do is to acknowledge and honor the agency of the learner and to allow them to verbalize their experiences, their intuitions, their, their hesitations, and not to be uh, afraid of that. Or more importantly, I think just the idea that you should trust your perceptions. Your perceptions could be off, but maybe not trust them. Is, maybe that's not the best word, but, but to, to take them seriously. So I, I, like, I like that you but say that. But even more, you can, you can bump that up one level too, is because theologians tend to get a little panicky uh, when other disciplines talk, and we're trying to really avoid mm. that, particularly at Concordia, where we want this liberal arts conversation. But disciplines itself, the other disciplines, need that integrity and that dignity as well. It's right. not just the person's experiences, but also saying something broader, like biology has something really amazing to say here. And I can't really speak to the expertise that's going on there, but what I can see is something very true about the world. It's not just outright dismissing them because they're not theology. Right. And old theologians tend to do that, I think. They tend to kind of say, well, you're just talking some nonsense over there, or that's way too humanistic, or that's way too whatever, whatever. Don't look under that rug don't look at that's that right closet. We, everyone gets nervous and starts to shake i think uh, the better approach is to say hey there's something really cool another way to discover the truth that's laden in our world in these disciplines that might not be theology and the nice thing we do too is uh, you know we have the primary sources so we, we've got this stuff it's historical material that we get to wrestle with and that i think provides some nice opportunity for dialogue now over to dan even though you know you're, you're primarily dealing with philosophy you're doing this within a Christian institution. How do you see, from the outside, the theological conversations at Christian universities and, and so forth? How do they sometimes maybe go wrong with respect to teaching theology, do you think? Well, it can go wrong in terms of uh, theological education, again, just trying to get us to be, uh, trying to get your students to be good uh, I'm going to use this word, but I don't mean this word in a negative way, dogmatic thinkers, right? Okay. Actually, I'm sorry, I am using it in a negative way. Yeah. Like where you just say, okay, here's the, the spread of answers to certain questions. And bio is always one where there's lots of questions because the, the common, the standard theory in biological sciences is evolutionary theory of some stripe. 
And that freaks us out as Christians because we do have a text that says things happen in a very specific way and in terms of purpose in the universe. And the evolutionary worldview tends to, to push that away. But if we just train up the next generation to field questions from that field in a particular kind of um, framework that never gives, as I think uh, Dr. Ash was saying, integrity or autonomy to the other disciplines, say the biological sciences, we will never have a, a, the ability to actually speak into the biological sciences, right? We will never actually be able to have a conversation. And we'll essentially create the uh, equivalent of little robots, who can spout off answers, but you're going to have a, a facade that is not even skin deep. <laughs> and if you start scratching, pretty soon you're going to realize, holy cow, there's a lot more to this world than I ever thought possible. And that shouldn't be a worldview slash faith-shaking event. That should be something like, all right, I'm like, this is... This is the world God has given me. It's much larger than I ever thought it was. Let me get out there and play in it now. And it doesn't mean I have to buy into all the different, all the different truths that the different disciplines are given me, but I should be able to, and we should be training our next generation to actively engage in those disciplines, not shun them, avoid them, or uh, blindly critique them. Jeff, this is a great point also, because what theologians tend to do is lay down a party line real quick. And so what Faithful people, parishioners will sit there and say, oh, well, my you know, thinking's already been done for me. The party line is there. And so I've kind of offload my direct engagement with a particular subject because it's tricky or difficult or makes me nervous yeah. and shake. But at least someone with authority has told me what I'm supposed to believe here. And that's not the best, that's not the best we have to offer. And it's certainly not going to be good for Christendom going forward as we have to engage a radically increasing uh, complex world that we're, we're, we're confronting ourselves every day. And we find that. So. Mm. And, you know, Dan, we're going to be doing something with a, a documentary film about CRISPR. Mm-hmm. And that's so brand new, you know, this, uh, this, this new science related to altering gene, your genes. Gene editing, yeah. That's not a thing that Thomas Aquinas has a direct answer for, you <laughs> nope. know, or, or even you can't go straight to the Bible and say, what do I do with this? Right. So the, so the fun part is these interdisciplinary conversations. It's, it's not supposed to be terrifying. But now, what is the biggest challenge you have in terms of getting, let's say, Christian students to engage some of the materials that you, you look at in core philosophy? Yeah. Uh, it, here, I mean, at a Lutheran institute, Lutherans, at least of the LCMS variety, <laughs> have been very leery of philosophy. And yes. that's, that this comes back to a few things Lutheran, Luther said himself about the nature of reason and uh, reason the philosophical the test. Whore. That's right. Frau Huldra. Uh, I used to have that uh, etched into the back of my phone. I walked around as the devil's whore. Um, the wife was not too keen on that one, though. <laughs> there, there are better, <laughs> better personal monikers. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, I mean, so that, that's, that's kind of like an internal conflict that I always have in terms of kind of trying the interdisciplinary conversation with theologians and uh, people of my own kind of denominational background. Is there, they're outright leery of just where, what the role of reason is uh, in kind of the theological life. With students at the university... It's kind of a mixed bag because I don't, we don't have a large Lutheran population. I see roughly 50% of all freshmen that come through in any given year, and they're all over the map. 
I mean, we've got the entire gambit of uh, Southern California Christianity here, and then the non-believers, and then the Muslim students, and then even, uh, to some extent, uh, I've had more, uh, well, I don't know what their actual background is, but Buddhist uh, mm-hmm. minded Eastern uh, thought, yeah, Eastern thought That's um, right. uh, students. And so th- this is where I think philosophy can actually shine because what philosophy is uh, traditionally in this kind of love of wisdom and the search for wisdom is trying to do is really figure out how can all these different people talk to each other? How do we actually engage? And it can be for um, apologetic slash um, evangelism reasons or it can even be just to say, look, we have to live together in community. How are we going to do this? I've got some very different beliefs from you. How are we actually going to have a conversation about truth when fundamentally at some metaphysical level we are at uh, odds with each other, right? Can we, can we come down to earth and have some sort of, uh, I'll use the, the, the jargon, Socratic conversation? Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite lines that Socrates gives to, to us in the Apology is, you know, he, he's dedicated to trying to figure out what human wisdom entails. What are the limits of human wisdom? And regardless of where our metaphysical backgrounds kind of lead us, where we find ourselves landing, whether it be in a Christian faith, a non-Christian faith, a Buddhist faith, uh, we're still human. And so there's going to be, there's going to be philosophical similarities across the board, if not theological similarities. Some of those philosophical issues, the existential dread and things like that might lead us into theological conversations. But there will be also a kind of down-to-earth just conversation we can have. Turns out, though, to also be the greatest hindrance of philosophy, because then where do we, where do we, how do we move forward, right? You, like, this yeah, is, you can't just be asking You right. can't just be asking questions and having questions. conversations. Socrates isn't it off, but they killed <laughs> right. him. Right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> so so, the, so the, the greatest value in terms of kind of humanizing a conversation can also be its detriment in terms of, well, so what next? And the philosopher tends to say if, they're, if, they're, uh, if they can practice the intellectual humility of Socrates, I don't know. Right? But that, again, speaks to the fact that philosophy cannot be a singular discipline. It has to be within the interdisciplinary context. I have to be in conversation with my theologians, my biologists, my sociologists, my anthropologists, psychologists, everybody. Do you find that your students actually get uh, run up against that wall where they spin their wheels and it's like, hey, what is behind this? What, what's the next thing? How can I make any sort of progress towards advancing some view of the world that's more true? I, yeah, I found, again, and this is just a general observation of the student body that I get as freshmen, that they come in with a very particular view of education. And the view of education is progressive, and it's progressive in go from step A to step D, and you will hop <laughs> off at step D, and you will have a job and a family, and life <laughs> is going to go well. And you will have solved your philosophical questions by the end of second semester. Right. Yeah, you, you know. solve your philosophical problems. Or you put the them in thing. a closet and never address That's them right. again, right? I, say, I don't know yeah. what that was. That was Forget terrifying. Forget that. Go <laughs> right. on. Right. And, but I think this is something that uh, you know, we're, we at the university get them at that last stage, and we can do a, we can do a lot of uh, cage rattling. But it is something that starts much earlier. It starts much earlier in the student's education. And so you're going to get some that come through that just are not ready for those conversations. And they'll usually just push them off into the corner and they, they get through your class and they'll raise your hands and say, again, we're just spinning circles. Why are we doing this? You know, how's this going to help me be a better doctor? How's this going to help me be a better whatever, right? Engineer or a nurse or the kinesiologist. And you just slowly work your way through that and show them, that. But but who knows, you know, they might be 52 years old That's in the right. middle of a job mm-hmm. crisis or something like that, and right. they kind of return without knowing it back to those 
central so, issues and questions. And so one of the things that I've turned to with my classes, and I say, and they're you know the, again freshmen, they're eighteen years old. They're they're they really are on the kind of like the upward swing of their arrogance and their youthful exuberance. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, I tell them, I say, look, one of the philosophy's great legacies uh, that get, that's given to us from Plato is philosophy teaches you how to die well. And this is not going to make sense for you right now because you're not, you know, mortality. Some of you might have lost some friends, a parent, a grandfather or something like that. But death hasn't necessarily swung at you yet. And philosophy is trying to get you to that headspace where uh, literally you're, you're, you're all of us, common ground, are marching towards our death. How are you going to live in terms of the life that's been given to you? How are you going to do that well? And that's what philosophy is trying to do. It's an now, important question. Now, if that's too deep, the way I kind of backtrack this is with my students is I'll talk about now that's like your actual life, but you you're living all sorts of cognitive lives. You've got all sorts of plans and dreams and ambitions. And if you've ever read, read the literature on uh, kind of how life works, 90% of those are going to fail. So what the liberal arts does well and philosophy can kind of give you a nice, uh, a nice grounding in is how are you going to survive when your cognitive life falls apart around you? It's almost teaching you how to mourn. Yeah. Yeah. You've been, you've been denied. I mean, for ours, for us, it'd be like, you've been denied tenure. What next? Yeah. You're like, ah, I don't know. Hey, or I you wanted to fly F-16s when I was right. a kid, you know, and then you have to realize, oh, I'm blind. But, I can't fly F-16s and you go through the next. That's right. <laughs> but this gets to a few of them because I've had a few where I, and I've just started using a lot more sports analogies because a lot of my students are athletes, right? Where I said, look, do any of you have friends who, who got their full ride to a school, a top 10, a dream school, but then in that last season, they blew their, their ACL out. Mm-hmm. And I, every semester in, in a class, I'll get one or two and I say, okay, tell me, what are they doing now? And most of them are like, well, they're staying at home. They went to the junior college. I go, is there any prospect for them playing again? Very slim. Well, how are they doing? And to a T, they're like, they hate life. Yeah. They hate life because they put all their eggs <laughs> in that sport basket, and it was ripped away from them. And sometimes it's not even ripped away from them on the court. It's literally because like, they tripped and fell on a stair, and mm-hmm. their ACL blows, and they're out. And so I said, okay, just keep in your mind, that's going to happen to you someday. It might not be that way. And remember all these questions and these answerings and, and these, these, uh, these Socratic in- dialogues that we get into, they're training you for that moment. Mm-hmm. What next? Can I pick <laughs> up the pieces or do I go into mourning and just hide in my shell? And, and be- for that, you better know a little bit about what Aristotle thought about happiness. Yeah. Even if you disagree with him. Absolutely. Because he's going to say, you know, there's, there, there are things that are going to get in the way of your happiness. There are things that you might think are going to be happiness, and turns out that's a that's a false road. I mean, all the all the uh, you know the philosophers that come shortly after Plato and Aristotle start to really get into you know the ways in which philosophy really does apply to life. The Stoics, the Epicureans, mm-hmm. the the, uh, the the skeptics, yeah, and they're all part of the conversation. So you know, it's the the, the sad thing for old Dan is that philosophy. I, I saw one time on this. It was a research study where they, they mapped out all of knowledge. They, they had the connections between peer-reviewed journals. And at the very middle of this cloud, this visual depiction of knowledge, all of the journal articles that came out, and they saw everything tied into philosophy. So philosophy is right at the hub of everything. Mm. But they get no love. <laughs> they get no funding. They get no, you know, you, you know there's, the majors are usually small or non-existent, that sort That's of thing. That's right. A while back, there was a grant that Concordia got, thanks to Joel, and um, this was going to help us to look at this question of vocation, but in light of the things that we do and the things that we want to do well, make no mistake, listener, 
Concordia Irvine, in one sense, is not going to be any, anything like a lot of other Christian universities. There are some church-related schools that are only nominally religious. You might have a religion class that's required, maybe some you know, optional chapel services. And then you've got, on the other end of that spectrum, in the church-related world, you've got very conservative colleges, I'd say like Biola, where all the students are expected to be Christian. The faculty have a, a very defined understanding of you know, what kind of... Sign particular student behavior contracts, things well, like right, that. Right, that, yeah. that's definitely true. And uh, so on the one hand, if you're, let's say, a Christian parent or a student looking at going to a, a Christian university, Concordia is going to give you a faculty that's generally more defined in terms of the commitments of the faculty and what they understand about faith and stuff, but the, fa- but the students are going to be much more diverse and broad, uh, which is, again, different from Biola or other schools like it. Uh, on the other hand, make no mistake, we're, we're talking about freedom of the mind and inquiry and so forth, but there's also a way in which we're not known, the, the brand of Lutheran that we are, we're not known for being the most free-thinking. I think the Concordias are, are censured by the American Philosophical Association, uh, Probably yeah. <laughs> for something that happened in the seventies. No, well, it, what was that? Do you know, <laughs> from the last I looked, so we don't, we won't. Yeah, we're we're not we're censured in this way. We've got a mark. Mm-hmm. So if we were to ever use the American Philosophical Association for job searches or whatever, there'd be we'd get a little mark on our on our uh, record if they were looking at the application just to say, hey, this is a school that has some uh, non. It's funny, non traditional, but that means non academic traditional uh, views of women and uh, family. So it's kind of more so of the kind of cultural issues. Yeah, we're pro-life. Yeah. Uh, we believe that women shouldn't be pastors, and so that 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 makes its way into the. How do the Catholics get out of this? That's I, a I good never understood question. that. I don't it's kind of like know. the Southern Baptists are always yeah. in trouble for not having women pastors, but the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox they just kind of float along because they look right. cool and they got the cool right, outfits. Right. And well, it, well, nuns the, help. The the uh, the, the uh, analogy to us with something like the APA, right, would be like, well, the Elka schools don't get censured. That's the ELCA. The ELCA, right. yeah. So they don't right. get censured uh, if they if they are going to advertise. They're not on the the blacklist because they're more open to the, the that uh, those more um, contemporary uh, academic virtues. I don't bring this up to air dirty laundry, but more to say, just you know, to get on the table what what the context is. And so when we were talking about getting this this little conference going for students in the summer, where they could come and engage these ideas at a place that is church related but give them an experience perhaps that they might not have had, especially if they came from, you know, church backgrounds, maybe even K-12 through Lutheran schools, for, you know, for all we know. And a lot of them are. Mm-hmm. And so I'm only pointing this out to say this is a difficult but really rewarding and important um, experience that I think we've had. It's been very rewarding to me. And before I get to the history of it, uh, a couple episodes ago, a few episodes ago, we talked to a student who said that it was one of the most profound Crosswise experience was the most profound thing that she really ever was able to participate in as a young person struggling with faith and and, uh, life. And she still has a group of friends on her phone that are all text buddies, and they continue this conversation that they had year one. They saw each other again year two, and then she, you know, I think she said aged out, and she was lamenting, (laughs) how come we can't just do this forever? You know, that sort of thing. I suppose that would be, that could be lucrative, but we're we're trying to get people right on that that cusp as they're they're thinking about their vocation and where they're going to go. Joel, how did this thing get started? What was the the kind of inspiration, what we were trying to do? 
Well, it started with a, um, yeah, Lily Grant, uh, Lily Endowment out of Indianapolis sent out a note to a bunch of different uh, theologically oriented universities saying, hey, here's what we want to do. We want to give you guys lots of money by starting some sort of high school institute that connects issues of culture and science with the faith, faith tradition that you have. And so if you know Lily, they're across a wide variety of denominations and something like 120 schools ended up uh, getting uh, this first uh, round of grants. But there was really three things that they were interested in. One, uh, a deep dive into a cultural issue of either now or into the future, things that they can see on the horizon. Not necessarily you know, rehash issues of 500 years ago that were kind of worked out during the Reformation, but more like, hey, what are the things that are going on right now in our cultural context that require some sort of examination, some sort of conversation, uh, something that's important to these kids? And then the second part of that is then go ahead and line up or bring to bear uh, your particular theological tradition in our case, or in my case, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. What does that have to say? What does that have to offer? What kind of conversation points can we have? And then maybe as a result of that, encourage more uh, students to go into these universities to pursue these issues further. Uh, maybe even church work, but not necessarily church work, of course. I mean, whether it's going into biology, whether it's going into psychology, where can you bring these kids together to have that conversation. So Crosswise was kind of born out of that. Unfortunately, I raised my hand a little bit too high when I was excited about <laughs> this particular idea. And then next thing you know, you're writing the grant. Next thing you know, you're putting together a team. And our team from the very beginning said, hey, let's do things um, in a way that doesn't get straight to the party line, but in, includes some disorientation, some disequilibrium. So that very first event, that, that girl that you were talking about, uh, Reference the very first thing we did is we put someone who is not a Christian at all, in fact, uh, um, self-described atheist, a transhumanist of all things, uh, Zoltan Istvan. He was our lead speaker. Yeah, and by the, the way, the first he, time some of these kids ever heard these ideas coming yeah. at a Christian university, and we just let them sit and stew in some of the the craziness of that idea, and sometimes the very well laid out arguments of those ideas. Yeah. And now they're wrestling, well, what does that mean for my life? I only heard the party line, and now these guys are exposing me to something that I'm not familiar with. Have you followed Zoltan's career since, you know, his... Oh, I'm following him on Twitter. I'm yeah. watching his... Well, what's uh, he doing now? He's his presidential candidate right he, now. I think, I think he's going to lose to Trump in the primaries, <laughs> but he is, he is a transhumanist option running in... In, in the Republican primary. And what an interesting States. guy he is. I, yeah. Dan was the one who found him. I'm kind of curious his initial reaction to the conversations that were, <laughs> that were had there to get him out to, to see us. Oh, he was always, I mean, you know, he, he, when I approached him, he was, I think, running for... Yeah, I was governor he, here. He was libertarian governor, governor libertarian party, governor of California. He, yep. dro he drove a coffin up and down, a giant bus that he turned into a coffin. Uh, up and down the uh, the California state to try to get people on his onto his party line because one of the big things for transhumanism is the defeat of death, right? So this was like the platform he ran on. Back yeah. to your issue, <laughs> but he was he was very open. Uh, I I re watched him talk. I was like, okay, this guy is is engaging. He's smart. Um, he's definitely bought in 110 percent to this transhumanist worldview. And uh, he, uh, he, you know, he's got a background in religious studies and philosophy from Columbia, so he's well educated. He traveled the world. He, uh, I read his book, The Transhumanist Wager, and it, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, loosely based on his actual life experiences traveling the world and trying as a uh, National Geographic photographer and things. And uh, and so he, he's just got a lot of personality and character. And it turned out that when he got here with the students, he was amazing with like. Uh, you know, speaking at a level that respects them as adults, but also being willing to engage with them for 
I mean, what did he say? 45 minutes to an hour afterwards, just sure. fielding questions with the yep. students in an intimate setting where they just got to go back and forth with him. And even when he spoke, after he spoke, what, 15, 20 hands yeah. go up, yep. yeah. and they're firing live, live rounds, right. if you will, back at one another. He was, uh, the, the, uh, again, just speaking to uh, kind of what we do here at Crosswise and Concordia University Irvine uh, itself, is w- after the event got done, he, he emailed me uh, and said, you know, uh, that was a really great event. Like, you guys are really doing something different uh, in terms of the conversation that we had between, again, me as a full-blown atheistic uh, transhumanist and you guys as very conservative Christians. We were able to actually come to conversation. He, he, he's asked, uh, and I, we never followed up with this, but he asked for the video because he wanted the dialogue. We did a dialogue section at the end, and he wanted that to actually use as promotional material for him at, and how, at how we can have actually a better conversation about these issues. Uh, so he recognized coming, you know, speaking to that idea of a, of a, of a secularist kind of looking right. in at what we're doing here and going, yeah, that's yeah, healthy. That, that's a place that, that I can have a conversation with. That's why even I if we're not going to agree. That's why I wanted you guys on this because a lot of the time when people invite me out to speak, they want to say, how can we get more student engagement in catechesis or training in the faith or the youth programs? And they're usually looking for some kind of gimmick or trick or something. And I, I think you really hit on the key thing that's important to Stacy and I on the, the podcast is getting students to have agency and have personally held beliefs that are committed to critically, but with humility and respect. And the the thing is, when those students got through that process, they maybe didn't have all their answers uh, down, but they, they definitely were able to be confident and bold in their engagement with it, you know, and that allowed them, in many cases, to have a, a strengthened faith. Maybe sometimes it, it could have made them think, hey, maybe our only salvation is technological. I, I don't think so. Because we talked a little bit about, you know, what, what does eternity look like on a hard drive? If you're in a living hell now, I don't know if, you're, <laughs> if your uh, uploaded self is going to be any yeah. happier. The kingdom of God in heaven start now and go on forever. <laughs> right. so, but you're hitting on a really key distinctive of Crosswise, which at the very beginning, we, we always decide, we decide this at the very beginning, which is let's not start with telling them the framework by which they should understand everything to follow. The point was to have the conversation with the cultural issue, the scientific issue on its own terms, right? To allow it to, to say what it has to say fully and completely. And again, watching the kids have to confront that without any prepackaged ways by which right. they could say that's wrong or that's crazy or that's stupid. It, we didn't want to do that. In fact, usually we bring in theology very slowly towards the end of the week so that there's an actual arc, partly to just have them experience that disequilibrium, but partly just as a the practice of being hospitable, good neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, to say, hey, they got something to say. Let's hear what they have to say, but let's not try to cut them off halfway through and say, now this is why that particular idea uh, makes no sense in the you know biblical yeah. framework, and we and we have I mean you know we do bring in like a theological keynote at the end. We we'll always bring in kind of a, a and you know again for those who aren't LCMS, please come and join us. But we do bring in tend to uh, we tend to close with an LCMS speaker who can kind of speak into it from within our own doctrinal tradition and confessional tradition to kind of address some parts of these issue. But we do, and this is what 
is kind of neat, um, and it works to varying degrees of success depending on who we have filling these roles. We do implement kind of a table talk uh, uh, yeah, component, group really, component, yeah. yeah, yeah. Where after, where even so, we have theo- theology professors who have not heard these speakers yet. Right, they come in and they watch the, the speaker alongside the students, and then after the speaker does a question and answer and whatever they're do- whatever, however long we you know the speaker wants to stay and hang out with us and, and continue conversation with the kids, then they break into these table talk groups where literally a theology professor and and a small group of the students will start decompressing what they heard and how to put it into some sort of scripture. In real time. In real time. So the students are actually working alongside a theology professor, again, who might not have a lot of background here. And so we stretch the theology professors as well. Yeah, it's an experience. It's an experience because they're coming in and sometimes they want a little bit more of a formal. They say, well, what what do you want me to say? I go, I just want you to unpack this with the kids. Just just unpack it with them. What questions are they asking that came out of that? And where can we go to scripture to maybe get some guidance on how how to not solve it, but to work through it and to struggle with it? Uh, and I, I think that's been a very successful part of the program. I agree. Um, in terms of keeping theology at the core of it, but not necessarily doing it in the traditional way it's been done in the past at youth events and whatnot. Hey, being an adult Christian is hard. Yeah. And we're showing them that. Uh, we don't have the easiest answers. We don't have these prepackaged answers of which to talk about. As soon as Zoltan's done, then we just jump in and with our capes and say, okay, now here's, right. here's what you really got to think. But we're saying, yeah, it is hard. It is hard to be a Christian in this day and age. The issues are complex, and it's only going to get more complex as, you know, we march towards the singularity and all become, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cloud-based people. But nevertheless, that to have them watch uh, faithful Christians struggle through that beside them and to give them maybe some guidance and some pointers here along the way and, and to really think critically yeah, that's a really valuable thing because uh, you can't walk along these, as a parent, you can't walk along your son or daughter throughout their life. You just simply cannot. It's not going to make for resilient, uh, faithful Christians. It's just going to create a bunch of robots that have learned how to offload their thinking. Or are they, bla- are they blast off after 18? Mm-hmm. So I, like to, yeah. I like to compare it to like, the theological question here to the geometry, where if the student in geometry just knows the answer, they either cheated or they looked in the back of the book, that's not very helpful. What I want to see is the proofs, mm-hmm. which is to say, show me how you, you got the area of this weird polygon. Not just the pencil marks, but the eraser marks too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the first year we had, it was, it was uh, transhumanism. transhumanism. That's and right. the second year... We did brain science that year. Science and faith, yeah. That was yeah. something else brain. too. And then, now this is year three. No, this is year four. Last oh, year we did relational kind of oh, that's right. the, right, like right. relationships. And this year we're taking on uh, kind of a very fun, uh, controversial issue of politics. And now, I backed out of it this year because I was on sabbatical and I'm, I'm going to try to take a nap. But, uh, <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll, I'll swing by uh, this summer. Mm-hmm. But briefly, what, uh, what, what might students want to know about if they're coming maybe to this next summer's event? What, what are the, you know, what are the parameters for who can come? Well, they just have to be in high school right now. Don't care what denomination they are. We don't care if they have any denomination, honestly. Uh, and we don't invite full youth groups. Right. So if you invite full youth groups, you just end up with, you know, five people that are interested and ten boys in the back flicking each other's ears. Right. So they're, talk about that agency thing. You kind of got to want it. And so individual students will say, hey, I heard this is what you're doing, and my friend and I are interested, so we'll fly on in. And what's really kind of remarkable 
is this hasn't been a this hasn't really been a Southern California event at all. No. In fact, I think last year we had twelve states represented, and very few were actually Orange County students. Get a group from San Diego, get a group from up north, but then states scattered all over the union and coming on in simply because they've heard that this is a place that does things a little bit differently, or maybe the subject itself interests them. And so who knows who might inter- be interested in you know, citizenship and politics, who might be thinking, hey, you know what, in my, in my future, I want to be a part of some sort of um, um, political life, some way of serving uh, the community in that way. And I'd like to, uh, to know a little bit about that, or I'd like to at least retain my Christianity in the face of the world I'm about to go into. And so those are the kinds of you know, people that might be interested in this particular one. But we've also been noticing lately that students who've come to this and seeing kind of the, 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 the flow of um, trying to think critically about cultural issues, they're interested in all sorts of things. This right. just happens to be another thing that they could have interest. There's not like we, right. it, on the brain science one, it's not like we had a whole bunch of kids who were going to go into neuroscience. Right. We had your average kid who was just kind of fundamentally interested in how do I apply uh, the faith that I have, the faith I've been taught, and use that in a way that speaks intelligently to what's going on in the world in this particular field. And so that's what we're hoping to hit for everything, that, that there's going to be a little bit for everybody, no matter what kind of interest you have, whether you're a junior or a freshman or a senior getting ready for college. Hopefully there's always enough there for everyone. But then for those students who have those more boutique interests, that might draw them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, yeah, any of the topics are going to help you to, to practice these thinking skills because we're still talking about the great questions of the liberal arts and again that's when you know when dan's talking about that these are questions that apply to all of us in some way and we're going to try to pull out or distill some of those crucial liberal arts questions and every time every time crosswise gets together one of the things that this podcast is about is helping people not get into culty ways of thinking and i'm using this broadly but one of the ways i've I've really tried to steer clear of it lately just because uh you know politics but the uh, but the thing that scares me most right now is the cult-like behavior of certain people within political conversations. That is, there are, just in our case now, we're kind of gearing up towards more of a, uh, a Trump versus Bernie Sanders kind of thing. But you got the you, you got people who vote for Trump, and then you got a Trumpist. And then you got people who <laughs> might, might end up voting for Bernie, and then there's the Bernie bro. And the, the thing that is most worrisome to me from the perspective of what this podcast cares about is the way in which when people step out of line, there are these sociological aspects that kind of smack them around, getting them back into line. And the thing that's odd is that we haven't really given a lot of people within society the ability to reflect on what their political philosophy and values are. Instead of asking, why do we have these political values? It's more of the question of just memorizing it right, and staying in line, what are, you, what are you going to be doing? Give me a little bit of a, of a taste of, you know, what the agenda is going to look like, what are some things that you could look forward to? Yeah, so we, what, what we've got set up right now, and we're still working on the final details uh, of the actual program, but we've got, we've got three keynotes that two of them are secured. We've got a guy coming in on Monday. Uh, his name is Jason Bear, if you want to check him out. He does things on intellectual virtue. Uh, at a Loyola Marymount, and basically just kind of working through how do we, in this kind of Twitter society, (laughs) how do we uh, actually cut into the truth of the matter when really you've got 150 characters? What kind of skills do you need to develop to kind of uh, just overcome what Twitter has literally done to our brains by making Mm -hmm. us jump, you know, we, we, we... 
no longer do we go from A to B, the, the geometrical proof. No longer do we go from A, B, C, D, E. Now we go from A to E to B to C and then to D. And to canceling like, you. To, well, okay. <laughs> and they're all caught up in captions. Right, yeah. that's right. So follow up uh, Monday with the, you know, the intellectual virtues into the, the Tuesday program where we're going to have uh, somebody coming in and addressing the cancel culture. And we're still working on the specifics of that one. That's the one that's been a little harder to lock down this year. Uh, but we've got some good leads on, on kind of actually introducing the students to people who have... Uh, I don't, what's the right word? Suffered the cancel culture, mm-hmm. been uh, publicly shamed in some publicly way. Publicly shamed. They're going to come in and kind of yeah. just talk about their experience and how how they worked through that. And and you know these will pro- the people I'm looking at right now are not necessarily going to be conservative uh, Christians nor conservative politically. You know these are going to be the progressives themselves that you were right. just talking about, where you know they they said something that was a little bit out of line and they got jumped on. There was yeah. blood in the water, and some of these they lost their jobs because of this. Yeah, right. But this is the setting that our students are going to be stepping into, our high school students into the next, you know, w- within the next four years if they're not going off to college of the next year, where they're going to be at a university, and if it's not our wonderful university, uh, you know, they might be at a big state school where the cancel culture is alive and well. So how do you yeah. how do you retain honor and courage in the face of Eyes wide open, knowing that there's gonna that that in 150 tweets your life could be over. Yeah, it turns out somehow that theologians aren't the only ones who work with dogma. Yes, right. There's there's dogma right. and all Orthodoxies. sorts of disciplines. Yep. Whether you know you're going through the yeah you know the woke council culture check marks. Hey, I'm yep. more woke than you. This is the kind of thing that you've got to do in order to be you know acceptable in this particular group of right. people. Particularly when political tensions are high. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. If it's a Bernie versus Trump year. Well, the, right. The, the the Bernie thing was interesting. There was a podcast where Joe Rogan said he's probably going to vote for Bernie Sanders and upset everybody because he's got a lot of people that would be Trump supporters that listen to his show, but he's also kind of lumped in with the intellectual dark web. And so there were some people on the Bernie team that wanted Bernie to renounce Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan Mm -hmm. because of something that he said controversial about MMA and transgender athletes. So... So, so it's not just the digital culture of right now and this yeah. whole Twitter experience. It's also your entire life and thought are recorded indefinitely into the past, mm-hmm. which means your last 10 years, any 150 character or less tweet can be pulled out and used yep. as ammunition in that regard. And now everyone's guns are pointed at everyone else. It's, you know, How do you get a kid who's see, coming to Crosswise yeah. to, to, to see the landscape, to see how dangerous yeah. that is, but also, again, how to press forward, how to get beyond that right. into something that's valuable for their communities, right? right? That's why I'm really excited about what this year is going to do because I think if you're a parent or a student, this might not have been something you needed to worry about as a liberal arts student in 1920. I mean, it's always behind the surface of everything. I mean, politics is always like this in some ways. But because of the new technology, you're kind, of, you're kind of weaving this thing together now because the way we think about technology and the brain and, and relationships and now into politics, this is a good one. Even if you're not interested in political science directly, this is related to the way you navigate a new world. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go into business, you're going to need to figure this stuff out because, you know, you could be Disney doing a Star Wars lesbian kiss and you've got both sides <laughs> lined up uh, yeah, <laughs> angry at you <laughs> yep. either for tokenism or for you know ham-fisted uh, never, political correctness never you know? never has philosophical wisdom been more in demand 
and l- still, <laughs> at the core of it, hated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, on our last day of the uh, the event, we'll bring in uh, Dr. Adam Francisco, who's a professor of history here at Concordia University, Irvine. Uh, he also works with 1517. And his specialist, he, his, his dissertation and a lot of the things he's published in have been uh, regarding Christian-Muslim relationships. So he's navigated those waters using a Lutheran framework of two kingdoms and what it means to be kind of a cultivated citizen. And he's going to kind of close us off in a theological mode of thought regarding how does that doctrine of two kingdoms actually help us with the navigation problem uh, in terms of you're stepping into a world that is literally out to get you. Uh, Something new that we're going to attempt this year uh, that we haven't done in the past. In the past, we've done classroom experiences where we introduce the students to like our actual faculty on campus and they do kind of a classroom setting with them. So they get the students are going to hit the topic from all the sorts of different disciplines that interdisciplinary aspect of the liberal arts. But this year, to get more on board again with kind of uh, uh, modeling and getting the students involved in the give and take of conversation and trying to navigate the waters themselves, we're actually going to kind of model uh, argument with the students. So instead of the classroom, we're going to have a, a panel of three or four professors who, you know, we all, we're all friends. We're all in this educational experience together here at Concordia. We work well together on this. But we're actually going to, you know, we'll, we'll pick some topics that are, that are uh, focusing around wisdom, honor, and cultivated citizenship that we're actually going to sit down for an hour to 45 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour and a half, and actually kind of, you know, again, go at it with each other in terms of argumentative kind of positions and say, well, here's how a philosopher is going to approach this idea of wisdom. Here's how a sociologist, a theologian, and we're going to actually try to create a little tension and then invite the students in to kind of, you know, bring, bring some of their own thoughts to it that will focus around what the main speaker said in the morning. But again, it's, it's, mod, it's, it's designed to kind of model argument for students. That's a little bit deeper than 150 characters. Yeah, can you imagine that, where we can actually argue about a topic and then end up shaking hands and loving one another yeah. through it all? Right. Just that practice alone could serve these students well into their you know, future. Right. So. And to the point that you brought up on this, Jeff, earlier, that you know, here at Concordia we've been blessed with very theologically um, forward and thinking faculty in the other disciplines. So we can do this here, whereas you know, at, at Cal State, whatever, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do it this way because mm-hmm. you've, got, you've got faculty that actually care about what these students think and actually care about the formation of the student, not just dumping a, a set of data points in them to say this is how you need to think about X, Y, and Z, but are willing to say, you know what, I don't know what the actual answer is, but let's show you how three people who think very differently about this come together and try to reach some sort of common ground so that then we might be able to move forward, even if we don't get to, the, to an actual solution. And even if we don't get to a complete uniform thinking between the two people who are in discussion, right? Mm -hmm. The goal isn't to think exactly alike. So, you know, there's going to be some value to that. I am really, that's, that's the part I'm looking most yeah. forward to this coming years. That's uh, really crosswise. refreshing. I'm glad you're doing that. I'm, I'm, I think this is going to be fantastic. So you got a little bit of a, an offer for our listeners. Yeah. So uh, we're excited, you know, to, to introduce uh, this Crosswise event to any one of Jeff's listeners. Maybe this is the first time you've heard of it. And we'd love to offer a discount uh, for those um, who might be listening to the show. And so we're going to give away five uh, scholarships uh, that will knock off 100 bucks basically off your uh, tuition to come on over. Uh, tuition, I guess that would be the participation fee. And it sounds like I'm offering tuition at Concordia. I am not doing that. Uh, but it's about $100 off uh, on your um, uh, application. 
for the first five that contact you, Jeff, then you pass that along to us and we'll go ahead and get you the code to get on in. I also want to let you know that if you're hearing this all the way out in, say, Florida or Texas or somewhere and you're thinking, boy, that's going to be hard for us to get on out there anyway, we've been doing this as a part of our habit and a part of our commitment to uh, out-of-state students, which is to help them uh, get out here. And so we've offered for those who have uh, financial need uh, half of their uh, travel uh, costs, so half of a flight or half of um, uh, the money it takes to maybe drive down from uh, Oregon or, or Northern California. And that just means contacting us and, and we'll work that out with you. But the first five uh, who contact you, Jeff, uh, that's, that's uh, where we're going with that. We'd love to offer a, a solid discount. Um, and to get a hold of us, you can email your interest to the PYNP, the PYNP at gmail.com, the PYNP at gmail.com. You can also find ways to contact me through uh, protectionaga.org. And you can also see the show notes for this page and some links to Crosswise and what these cats are up to. Thanks so much, guys. We got all the sounds of the university, but I don't mind it. It's kind of fun to be outside sometimes. It's a lovely day. This has been great. Yeah, this Corvette's flowing over. What, what was that? What was that? There's this couple of Muscovy ducks. These like these oh, the ugly ones. They, they just kind of, fl- but they like they're these beautiful, like this monogamous couple that they have no other Muscovy ducks. <laughs> they're these uh, released. Um, they somehow escaped uh, the local yeah. restaurant and uh, made yeah. their way. We, Aren't the Muscovies the ones with the big bumps on their heads? Yeah, and yeah. 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 And then they're, they're huge. And they, <laughs> they, they, they're over from the, the duck pond. So sometimes yeah. people will have an Park ornamental pines. duck, and then they'll just, you know, there you go. <laughs> and so we leave them out there. And we are 20 minutes from the beach, 20 minutes from, from uh, Disneyland. Never hurts. That's not the thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press for the college. Never but if hurts, you're coming though. down for summer yep. and you're, you know, you're living in eastern Oregon, this come is the place to be. Come see the new Star Wars land. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. And Thanks, thank you, Jeff. listeners. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Peace and fun. Uh, thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.